would ask you to follow with me as I read John 20, beginning at verse 19. On the evening of that first of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you for your word. We bless you for the reality of the things your word testifies to, of the resurrection of your Son. We're thankful for the great love with which you've loved us, love that met us in our trespasses and and sins, that you were pleased to grant us resurrection life through his resurrection, that we've been born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for us. We're thankful, we're privileged to have your word. We're thankful that we're privileged to be able to study it and to glean the depths of its instruction. We pray you grant us to be able to discern from your word what your mind is and be able to live in the light of the Lord. Give us grace, we pray. Left to ourselves, all of our efforts are futile. Left to ourselves, we're simply trafficking in notions and ideas that ultimately would bear no fruit at all. We pray, Lord, you'd bless your word that your word would be fruitful in our lives, that we would show forth the fruit of the Spirit and bring forth the fruit of righteousness that is through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. Hear us, we we ask, as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When we use the words Great Commission, normally we think of Matthew 28. We think of those words that Jesus spoke on the Mount of Olives when he said, Make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all things whatsoever I have commanded, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But you know there are other aspects to this Great Commission are the words that Jesus spoke about the work that his church was to do subsequent to his ascension to the Father. You have, if you have the long ending of the Gospel of Mark, those very well-known words, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. Again, you need the long ending of Mark to include those words and Uh, Some of the manuscripts of Mark do not include them, but they're very well-known words, and they do speak of what the church did, proclaiming the word of life to to the the people of the nations. Uh, We have in Luke chapter 24 these words that Jesus spoke. He said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and remission of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then that commission was expanded upon in the book of Acts. Where in the book of Acts, Jesus actually defines the localities from which the gospel would spread to the nations, beginning in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. You will be my witnesses but there's another version of the great commission or another expression of the work that the church was to do subsequent to our Lord's ascension is found in this passage in John chapter 20 we don't often refer to it as a great commission in any sense but indeed it is 
the work that the church was left with. It's the work that these apostles of Jesus were given to do. And more than just the work itself, also something of the power, something of the way in which this work was to be performed is included in these words that Jesus speaks in the upper room when these men met in fear of the Jews and Jesus stood among them proclaiming the words of peace, showing them his hands and his feet and his side, then in the face of their gladness again reiterates the words of peace and then sets himself forth as the model for their mission he says as the father has sent me even so I am sending you Jesus is the model for the work that the church is called to do as the father sent me to speak the truth so I am sending you to speak the truth as the father sent me to serve and not be served. So I am sending you in the ministry of service, not to be served, but to serve others. As the Father sent me into a world of sin and woe to sympathize and love and care for the lost and the displaced and the abandoned and the disregarded, so you're to not be detached and aloof from the needs of other people. You're to sympathize as I sympathize with you bring my message to them that they would know me as a sympathetic high priest as I was sent to show the beauty and the glory of the attributes of God so I sent you to show forth the praises of the God who called you out of darkness into marvelous light if I, as I was sent by the Father to sacrifice my life to give my life a ransom for many, not to seek self-fulfillment. So I send you to know the reality of of self-sacrificing love. Even so, I am sending you. But Jesus not only is the pattern for the mission, he is also the power for the mission as well. The passage tells us that when he said this, he breathed on them, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. We spent the last Lord's Day looking at that part of the commission. And to try to point out to you, that's not the spirit of regeneration. These were regenerate people already. But it's just something different. It's not the spirit of Pentecost. That was 50, years, 50 days later. Uh, but this is a, a, an endowment of the spirit to these men who would be apostles who would be Jesus successors we marked out the reality that you see this pattern of succession when the elders would succeed Moses in the matter of judging something of his spirit would be taken from him and placed on them we saw that something of the spirit was placed on Joshua as Moses' successor we see something of Elijah, Elisha saying uh, that he wanted a, tw- uh, a double portion of the spirit that was upon Eli- Elijah. So you see this pattern of the spirit being given to successors, to great men who had great ministries. The one who was the one through whom the law came had this matter of a successor to Moses. The one through whom the prophets began um, that work of prophetic Uh, ministry in Israel, Elijah and Elisha. There was that pattern of succession and the spirit being bequeathed from the first to the second. And something like that occurs here. Jesus breathes on them. says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. It's not just, it's, it's not the spirit given in the general fashion when the spirit was poured down from heaven. This is the spirit from Jesus' own breath. Breathed into them. It's not an outpouring, but it's an in-breathing. It's not 120. It's 10 apostles to equip them for the special work that they would be given to do as the those who would provide something of the foundation of the new covenant church. And also the very reality is the breath of Jesus. Jesus breathed into them. So clearly a, a mark of new creation because creation began with God forming the man dust from the ground and breathing into him the breath of life. 
So these were men, these ten, these twelve, these apostles of Jesus. They stood at the head of a new creation people. And we see something of that new creation expressed in the very breath of Almighty God coming into these men, even as the breath of God came into Adam and brought life unto the human race. Now as we concluded the message last week, perhaps you saw me take a bottle of water and take an inordinately large amount of water because I was up here feeling really bad. My my back was hurting, my side was hurting, and um, I really think it was as a result of being dehydrated. So um, I didn't really, I muddled through the final 10 minutes. The the water was a help to me. Uh, But I do want to omit one aspect of of our Lord's glory that shows forth in this passage. Not only the fact that he is the creator, the breath of life coming into these disciples, the Holy Spirit being imparted to them from the very breath of Jesus. But I think it also points out the fact of the interrelatedness of the members of the triune God. Out of Jesus' breath, the breath of his human existence, comes forth the Holy Spirit. We're told that Jesus, unlike us, received not the Spirit by measure. There was a fullness of the Spirit's presence and blessing in our Lord that set Him apart for the work that He had come to do. Through the, through the eternal Spirit, Hebrews tells us, He offered Himself up unto God. And so Jesus has propriety over the Spirit. He imparts the Spirit unto these disciples. And while in one sense, it's true that each of the persons of the Trinity are equal to the other in terms of deity, in terms of divine attributes, in terms of divine power, yet there is an order that defines these relationships within the persons of the triune Godhead. It's the Father who sends the Son, not the other way around. And it's the Son who imparts the Spirit. It's the Son who said in chapter 14, I will pray the Father, and He will give you another paraclete, another helper, even the Holy Spirit. That's probably speaking about Pentecost, that Pentecost would be the outpouring of the Spirit from heaven, the exalted Jesus sending forth the Spirit. But the fact is it's Jesus who in his exalted glory sends forth the Holy Spirit having prayed that the Father would give this gift unto his people. So in the book of Acts in chapter 2 and verse 33 this is what's said. It says being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember he said I will pray the Father. He received From the Father, the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the Spirit comes from the Father through the Son, from the Son to the people of God. That's clear to me. That's clearly how this goes in Scripture. The reality is in the church and all of the talking and discussing and writing that's been spilt on the subject of the Trinity, there's been a lot of people who have come up with different notions and different ideas about how inter-Trinitarian relations work. I'm not going to get into it in any measure of detail, but in 1054, some of you know there was a division within Christendom, East and West, Latin-speaking Christians from Greek-speaking Christians, And it was over this very question, where does the Holy Spirit come from? How does the Holy Spirit proceed from God to us? And it was a subject that unfortunately when the church council at Nicaea that addressed the question of Jesus and his deity, when they met in 325 AD, and they came up with their conclusion that Arianism, a belief that Jesus was a mere created being and not eternal God, that that was untrue, that that was heretical. They came up with statements about our belief in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They had dealt with Jesus' relationship to the Father, Father Father-Son relationships. But you know, after that, the whole question of where's the Holy Spirit fit in? 
We're baptized in the name, not just of the Father and of the Son, but of the Holy Spirit. God gives us not only Jesus, sending Him into the world to be the Savior of His people, but the Holy Spirit comes to us as well. But how does it come from God to us? And the later council took up that question and gave it an answer, and they came up with a creed. And the creed's called the Nicene Creed. Although the Nicene Creed didn't happen in Nicaea, it happened in Constantinople some 40 years later, 50, uh, 70 years later, I think it was. Anyhow, they made the statement that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And certainly He does. Jesus says, I will pray the Father. He will send you the Spirit. Being, being at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the Holy Spirit, He's poured forth this which you see in here. There's no question. The Holy Spirit comes from God the Father. He's the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of the Father. No question about that. And that's what the Nicene Creed declared. The Nicene Constantinople Creed. But unfortunately, some years later, and I don't remember all the places and the the groups that began to speak in this way but the Latin speaking church added a clause they added a clause in Latin it was filioque which means and the son and the son they were saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds to us comes to us yes from the father he's the spirit of God but he also comes to us through the son he's the spirit of Christ Christ gives the Spirit. Jesus breathed into them, said, receive the Holy Spirit. I don't see how you get past the fact that when you think of the Trinity and how God works in our salvation is that the Father sent the Son and the Father and Son sent the Spirit. <laughs> to me, that's clear. But the Eastern Church had a problem with that because they had this Latin phrase that brought in filioque. And they split the church all together. So they came out under the authority of the Church of Rome. And you got the Eastern Churches with the patriarchs of Constantinople and all these other places. Not really Constantinople anymore. Uh, that's Istanbul. But anyhow, you, you, you have a, a division of Eastern Orthodoxy from Roman Catholicism. And that's how it happened. It's over this very thing. But the point is, I'm just using that to just give you the sense of how we get the Holy Spirit of God in the Scriptures. Jesus has propriety of the Spirit. He sends the Spirit. He gives the Spirit. He breathes into them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit to the twelve. And then, from the right hand of the Father, exalted, He sends forth this, Peter says, which you see and which you hear. So Christ is the pattern. He is the power. He is the power of the living God ministering to the people of God through the Spirit of Jesus that we come to receive. Another helper, like unto me, not different from me, but like unto me. If we worship the Lord as our as incarnate deity, we worship the Holy Spirit as well, as part of the Godhead. And we recognize that He is not just some poor relation. He's central to the salvation of God. He's absolutely necessary for our salvation and for our life and ministry as the people of God. As the church goes forth in this mission, Christ is the pattern. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Christ is the power through His Spirit that He gives unto His people receive the Holy Spirit. But there is a final word. And it's a word that's about forgiveness. You keep the pattern of the three Ps or the two Ps that preceded. Christ is the pattern. Christ is the power. Christ is also the pardon. He's also the pardon. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now while this must, might seem at first look that this is something of a conferral of power and authority away from Christ to these apostles, that would simply be wrong. 
what this is is a reminder that this mission that follows Christ as the pattern and draws power from Christ through the Spirit has as its mission proper a mission of the revealing of Jesus who pardons, of a Jesus who forgives us of our sins. We have within the realm of the Christian message, the Christian proclamation, and the work of the church in the world, this matter of spreading this message of pardon or bringing the reality of a pardoning God unto men. I want to address this matter of Christ the pardoner from the vantage point, first of all, of the authority to forgive sins. And who possesses it? Who possesses the authority to forgive sins? Secondly, we want to look at the announcement of the forgiveness of sins. And then I want to say something about the abstaining, or in this passage, withholding, the keeping back of the forgiveness of sins. The passage contains all of that. There is an authority to forgive sins, an announcement of the forgiveness of sins, and an abstaining or withholding of the forgiveness of sins. Let's begin with this matter of authority to forgive sins. It's one of the great points of controversy in our Lord's public ministry that Jesus would say such things as this, your sins are forgiven you. Remember the men who took the man who was crippled and put him on a stretcher through the rooftop? Jesus seeing their faith. He said this, your sins are forgiven you. And they reacted not well. Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo, that's right. (laughs) No one can forgive sins but God alone. Apostles can't forgive sins. Forgiveness comes from a pardoning God. Every bit as much as the Holy Spirit comes from God through Christ, forgiveness comes from God through Christ. Sin is uniquely committed against God. And only God can ultimately pardon sin. You see it in Psalm 51. Look at Psalm 51. You have this amazing statement. With respect first to sin and then also to forgiveness. Psalm 51. Begin the reading of verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Here, the man does not go to the priests. The man does not go to other people. He goes to God. Because he says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is against God, ultimately and preeminently. You know, when Potiphar's wife is looking to put the moves on Joseph, his response is not, how shall I commit this, do this thing and, and sin against Potiphar? He doesn't say, how shall I do this thing and sin against you? He doesn't say, how shall I do this thing and sin against my old body? Although, in all those ways, those statements would be true. But that all pales in comparison to the much greater reality. How shall I do this thing and sin against my God? Sin is ultimately 
against God. David's writing is a man who committed adultery with Bathsheba, put her husband to death by proxy, and yet he says, though those crimes are great indeed, no questioning it, no minimizing it, you can't minimize the fact that this man was a rapist who committed an act of violent rape and abuse against a woman. King of Israel thought he could take whatever he wanted. There's no question he committed an act of cruel hostility against an innocent man. Because he didn't want his sin to be exposed when he found out that Sheba was pregnant with his child. And yet, though horrible as those sins were against Bathsheba and against Uriah, still pales in comparison to the reality that this man was a man after God's own heart. A man who had the light of the knowledge of God's favor and presence and love. And he sinned in the face of all that he knew about God. All that he knew about God's word and God's laws and God's promises. All that he knew about his calling and his identity as a king in Israel. He threw it all to the side. He sinned against God. He cries out to God, Have mercy upon me, O God. The Pharisees were right. Who can forgive sins but God? Who can cleanse the heart? Who can take away the deep dye of sins but God? Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Who can do that? Who can wipe away the reality of blood guiltiness? Who can wipe away the reality of hardness and oppression and injustice? Acts of violence, acts of self-will and self-seeking and self-pleasing. All the horrors that exist in the world today. Who can blot away such sins but God? Why is it then that the church of Jesus Christ sings, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's because of our knowledge and recognition that ultimately it is Jesus who is the one who is sent by God to be the pardoner and the one who through his own death purchases our pardon through the shedding of his own precious blood. And so when the Pharisees got upset, who is this that forgives sins? This man is blaspheming. Jesus simply says, hey, 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 what's easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say take up your bed and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority upon the earth to forgive sins. He's the Son of Man. He's the heavenly sent Son of Man. He's the one who comes with the clouds of heaven. He comes to the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, that great vision of the Son of Man. He's a divine person. He is God. He has every right to forgive sins. He has authority upon the earth to forgive sins. Pharisees, you're standing in the presence of Maker of heaven and earth. You're standing in the presence of Israel's God enfleshed. You're standing in the presence of one who has every right to your worship and service and praise. You're standing in the presence of one who has authority upon the earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. Man, take up his bed and walk. He healed a man. How? The power of God. How does he forgive sins? Well, it's because he's incarnate God. He's the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. And so it's for the conferral of sins that Jesus came into the world. But not just by declaration, but by dying. 
said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life. A ransom for many. To pay the price of their ransom. He's come to deliver the captives. He's come to free us from the prison house of our sins. We were held in captivity to sin and guilt. And there's nothing, no power on earth that could have saved us but the coming of Jesus into this world. could we give as atonement for our sins? Micah says I could give 10,000 rivers of oil, give my firstborn for the sins of my soul. It's not going to work. It's only the reality of a God who pardons. Who's a God like you who pardons iniquity and sin? It's what God does for us. It's how God comes to save us and redeem us and to cleanse us. But you see, it's this Christ who's a partner. This Christ who purchases pardon. Who confers pardon. Not just by dying, not just by declaring it, but by proclaiming a message of His love and His saving power through death. It's the Gospel. It's the gospel that brings pardon. It's the gospel that liberates from sin. It's the gospel that frees us from the prison house of sin. Isaiah 52 is where we really from the Old Testament get this word gospel from. It's this matter of the proclamation of a good news, of good news. That God has a message to be proclaimed to the nations. It's interesting where this passage is found in Isaiah 52, in verse 7. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 10, by the way. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Imagine having feet that are beautiful. (laughs) How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him who comes to bring good news. How in the world can feet be beautiful? You don't want to see my feet. I, I keep them well hidden because, well... Strange toes, strange toenails, strange things. I think they're ugly. I think that you say, what's your worst feature? Well, I got plenty of them, but my feet, by and large, far and away, are absolutely the worst. To think of anybody who has beautiful feet, well, their feet upon the mountains that are beautiful is the feet of the one who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The Lord has bared His holy arm, verse 10, before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Well, how does that good news come about? What is its substance? What is this message that the nations are going to hear? Well, it's the very thing that 53 begins speaking about. Who has believed what He has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's almost like the apostles of Jesus are lamenting the fact that they've been sent out to the world, into the world, with the gospel of good news. Their feet are the beautiful feet, and yet people aren't recognizing it. People are actually persecuting them for their their testimony to, to Jesus. They're, they're they're cast into prison. They're beaten, and they almost think there's very few that are ever going to come and acknowledge this message and bow to this message. Who's believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It seems like it's a message that doesn't sound like it's really plausible. This man who's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And yet, they say he's surely borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the picture of the dying Messiah. The picture of the servant of the Lord, tortured and persecuted and crucified with nails driven through his hands and feet, pierced with a with the with this with the soldier's um, javelin through his side. The lamb that's led to the slaughter, the lamb of God that John speaks to us about, led to the slaughter. Cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
The point is this death that he died was not for any crimes that he had done. It was for our crimes, our sins, our transgressions. He has purchased us to God through the payment of His own precious blood. And therefore, this message that the early apostles proclaimed is a message that ultimately will, under the power and blessing of God, bring every knee to bow, every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's, one time, there's going to come a time, folks, when the heavens, new heavens and new earth will contain a great multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe. And you know what every one of them will hold in common? Every one of them worships the Lamb. Every one of them. Not one accepting. Everyone in the new heavens and new earth will worship the Lamb. He will be in their midst. How did that occur? It's the power of this gospel, this good news. And you see this matter of the forgiving and withholding I'm sorry, the, 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 the conferring of forgiveness and the withholding of forgiveness doesn't come through the apostles' personality, doesn't come through their office, doesn't come through you know, their <coughs> native power or the fact that they have the Spirit. It comes because they're proclaiming the message of the cross. They're proclaiming the message of a crucified Savior. When you follow it out in the book of Acts, that's exactly what they were doing. Next chapter 2, this is this Jesus whom you have crucified. God's raised. God's exalted him. God's made him to be Lord in Christ. What shall we do, brethren? Repent, every one of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. How does remission come? In Christ. Through faith in Christ, a union with Christ, expressed in baptism. Forgiveness of sins comes through his name. They're proclaiming forgiveness again and again and again in Christ. In Him we have forgiveness of sins. Paul says in Ephesians, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. It's the gospel message. It's what these men were sent to proclaim. That's how they forgive sins. That's how they declare forgiveness of sins. Nothing just didn't go around the Roman Empire saying, oh, we have a power conferred to us by Jesus to forgive your sins, so therefore all your sins are pardoned. All your sins are rendered. No, they didn't do that. They said, repent, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Be baptized upon profession of that repentance. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive the remission of your sins. It's through the message of the gospel. The forgiveness of sins comes to, um, come, comes to sinners. If you forgive the sins of any, it's because you recognize they've come to faith. It's because you recognize they've come to faith. That's why you minister baptism to, the, to them in the first place. Is they've come to faith. Says in Isaiah, who's believed our report? Well, some did. To those who received the report, the word of forgiveness comes. Not because the church has the power to do this. It's the gospel that has the power to do this. But the church has a ministerial authority in the light of the word of God, in the light of the gospel of God's grace, to say, insofar as you've believed, insofar as you have committed yourself to Jesus as your Lord, insofar as you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, insofar as you've received this message, your sins are forgiven. We declare a full and free remission, not by churchly authority and churchly power, but by the power of a gospel that saves. That's what these men were sent to do. That's what they did. At every turn, they proclaimed the gospel. They were messengers of, of the good tidings, bringing the message of God's peace. That's their work. Proclaiming a message of the forgiveness of sins. The very reason Jesus came into this world. The people who believe the assurance, they are forgiven. They are forgiven. 
you're a believer this morning, I have no power to raise my hands and say anybody's forgiven, but I can tell you, if you've believed in the name of Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Not because I say so, but because God says so in His Word. God declares that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That's not my insight. That's God's own promise. That's God's own Word. It's God's Word that says there's nothing in heaven or earth under the sea or any place else that could ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A tribulation, peril, nakedness, sword. Not anything that's been created. Nothing can destroy God's people whom God has saved, whom God has brought into the embrace of His covenant promises and of His covenant love. If we found refuge in Christ, that refuge is certain, that refuge is sure. No power on earth can ever come to harm or destroy God's own people. But there's the negative side of that. He also says, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. How does that fit in? Well, with difficulty, I would confess. But yet, we do have in the Scriptures clear marks of indication that the apostles, at least, were able to come through so much of the falsity of the human heart. They were able to cut through what was, in their essence, false professions of faith. Remember Philip the Evangelist? He went down to Samaria and proclaimed the word of God. The Samaritan city came to faith. They believed. And there was this great one in their midst. He claimed to have the power of God himself. God by the name of Simon, Simon the Magician. And the Bible tells us that Simon heard Philip's preaching. And you know what? Simon believed. That's what it says. Simon believed. And not only does it say Simon believed, that Simon was baptized. He was baptized upon profession of faith. You want to go tell that guy, never doubt that you're a Christian. You're going to heaven. Write it, write it in your Bible. On this particular day, I made profession of faith. On this particular day, I was baptized. Therefore, never doubt you're going to heaven. Now, we sell that to people, and it's wrong. It's simply wrong. It's when the apostles of Jesus came down from Jerusalem to Samaria, and they put their hands on these people, to, and they received the Holy Spirit. Apparently, they spoke in tongues like the disciples did on the day of Pentecost. And Simon looked at that. He said, wait a minute. That's a power that I didn't have as a magician. That's a pretty great power. I want that power. I want that power. I need that power. I have to have that power. He offered them money. That on anybody I put my hands on, they'll receive the Holy Spirit too. So what's happened here? Well, Simon is exposed. His true nature is revealed. He's following after Philip because he thinks Philip could impart some influence, power, prestige, authority upon himself, which is what he lives for. He's not living for Jesus. He's not turning from his idols. The idol of power still continued to grip his heart. He thought he could buy the Holy Spirit with his money. When Peter sees that, he says, I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. I see. I see you for who you are. When he says, your silver perish with you. You don't savor the things of God, but the things of man. What's Peter doing? He's saying, hey, you know what? This matter of gospel preaching not only opens the door to this grace of salvation, this grace of forgiveness, it also shuts the door upon the hypocrites and the self-deceived and those that would parade themselves to be what they're not. This gospel comes to expose the reality of the falsity of the human heart as it comes from the God of truth. This whole matter of withholding 
matter that says basically we shut the door to you. You, you, know, you might have gotten in by a profession of faith, but the reality of what you've displayed about your true heart and your true nature brings us to kick out the back door. I think today we call that church discipline. <laughs> that when excommunication takes place, that's part of what it is. It says we just simply recognize that though you say you're a Christian, you're not what you say you are. Just there's no real reason to believe that what you profess is true. And as hard as that is, and as difficult as that is, we'd much rather be doing the forgiving part, right? Announce forgiveness in Jesus' name. Say, in the name of Christ, by the authority of God's word, you are forgiven. That's, that's wonderful work. <laughs> Church work, exposing hypocrites, that's hard work. We, we don't want to be doing that. And it's not that we're supposed to be going around looking around for hypocrites and looking around for, for false believers. No, don't do that. If, you, if, you, if you're doing that, get a better job. Get a more positive job. Get a job that's looking to encourage. But when people do reveal the reality of who they are, we're not just going to... You know, we have a responsibility to the purity of the church. We have a responsibility to the soul of that person to say, hey, reality is what reality is. Let's own up to it. Let's call it for what it is. And so this is the work. In Matthew, it's the matter of the keys. The keys of the kingdom that are given. What are the keys? Well, it's the keys that open. The keys that shut. It's the keys that opens the door wide to the wide berth God gives to all who come to faith in Jesus. There's also the keys that say you're locked out. Not you're locked out by the heart of God, but by your own wretched, rebellious indifference and lies and hypocrisy, and double dealing, and all the rest is true of, of sinners. It's the keys of David. Revelation tells us of which Jesus has the key. Jesus opens the door to life, and he closes the door to those who demonstrate their wickedness in not being what they say they are. And the day of judgment is going to reveal all that, because in the day of judgment, Jesus is going to take the masks off, isn't he? He's going to say to those who say, have we not done these mighty works in your name? He'll say, depart from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Reality is what reality is. And the day of judgment is not going to tell lies. It's going to just simply, God's going to judge the world in righteousness. It's going to be a judgment in accordance with truth. So the great call of God's word is that we need to get real with God. We need to be open and transparent before the presence of God. Well, just in, com- in conclusion, I won't keep it much longer at all. I think in Maine, these are words that record with these men who were apostles. We, we're not apostles, but you know, as believers who are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, we have a gospel and a word to do in the world to which we, like the apostles, are given a pattern. It's Jesus. His heart needs to be reflected in our work, in our labors, in our ministry, in our service. And we too have the power. It may not be the power to write scripture. It may not be the power to cast out demons. It may not be the power to say to the dead, arise. Yet the greatest power on earth is none of those things. None of those things. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Nothing else is said to be the power of God for salvation but the gospel. That's the greatest power in the world. Greater than any power. Solar power, nuclear power, electrical power. Take whatever power you choose. None of them can give life to the dead. They can only destroy None of them could, none of that can forgive sins. None of that can reconcile to God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And then we have the part of Jesus that we can offer to sinners. His mercy with the Lord is a fountain laid open for sin and uncleanness. What a joy to come to a world that is really 
laboring, heavy laden, weary, confused, distressed, messed up, and all the rest. Proclaim a message of pardon, of new life, forgiveness, of peace, of reconciliation, of a way to live life for God's glory that will bring you to joy is unspeakable and full of glory. So let us labor. Let us labor. Being guided by His pattern. Being clothed with His power. And whenever we can, be proclaiming His pardon in His name. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this portion of John's Gospel. We're thankful for what it tells us of the work of the church and the work that by implication we as a church are called to be doing pray Lord that we would not be failing that we would not be failing to reflect something of the the heart of Christ and of the pattern of Christ and we would not be failing to ever be humbled before you in the reality of our own insufficiency and need and ever calling upon you for the help of your spirit that we would not be failing to proclaim a message of grace and salvation of pardon and of reconciliation of the joys of knowing that God who is living and true so be pleased Lord to equip us be pleased to help us be guided in this way by these things all connected to the glories that are present in our Lord Jesus Christ. So hear our prayers. Bless this church as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.